Hello, and welcome back to this, the third and final episode of Future Proofing Media Freedom, the series from Chatham House, Luminate, and the International Centre for Journalists on the Undercurrents podcast feed. I'm Ben Horton, co-host of Undercurrents. And I'm Julie Fazzetti, I'm Global Director of Research for ICFJ. And in this series, we're exploring the many challenges facing public interest media in 2020, a year not just of the pandemic, but also of the disinfodemic, and increasingly a year where we're seeing crackdowns, shutdowns and attacks on journalists really setting off alarm bells. We're also going to be exploring potential solutions that enable us to defend media freedom collectively. So a lot to dig into. And it's great to see you again, Ben. Absolutely. Lovely to see you too, Julie. So in this series so far, we've focused on the financial sustainability of journalism and also the impact of the disinformation crisis, this disinfodemic, on news outlets across the world. You can catch up with those episodes, listeners, wherever you are listening to this one. But Julie, why don't you tell us a bit about the focus of this, our final episode? Sure. So we're going to look at an increasingly dangerous profession, the profession of journalism, which continues to be practised by people around the world who are from developing countries through to Western Europe and North America, facing converging threats, which include disinformation crisis that you've just referenced, collapsing business models, but they also include an escalation of media freedom and journalism safety threats, uh, an escalation that's happening in parallel with the pandemic, and in some cases as a result of the pandemic. So we're talking here, Ben, about everything from an increase in online violence against journalists, and that's something that I'm working on at the moment at ICFJ in partnership with UNESCO. We have a global study underway looking in particular at the experiences of women journalists online, and I think that's an important thing to highlight, that is the role of gender in exposing women journalists to increased risk. And it's a chilling effect. It's not just about threats to physical or psychological safety. It's also about a result that is limiting women's participation in journalism and female audiences, participation in online conversations, along with sources. So one way I think about this is women journalists really are at the epicentre of risk when it comes to understanding media freedom and journalism safety threats in 2020. We have this weaponization of social media platforms by state actors and other nefarious actors seeking to chill critical journalism. We have online violence as a phenomenon, which includes not just abuse and harassment, frequently accompanied by threats of rape and threats of rape against the girl children of women journalists, for example, so this extension of, of the threat to other family members as well as sources and audiences, and also the erosion of privacy, which is used and capitalised on by those people seeking to attack journalists. So By erosion of privacy, I mean things like mass and targeted surveillance. I mean data interception and handover to state actors. I mean also the rise of technologically enhanced powers of abuse. So the ability to create false images or doctored videos that misrepresent the women journalists being targeted. So that's an issue that I want to highlight up front, and that is happening in an online environment, but in an online environment that is inextricably linked to our physical lives. So we're seeing cases 
crossover from the online realm to the physical world and, and probably the most notable of those where we can make a correlation between online violence and murder with impunity is the case of Daphne Caruana Galizia, who was uh, an investigative reporter murdered in Malta. And I think that case is very illustrative of the challenges that we have. The challenge is that it is not just a case any longer of threats to journalists being out there in countries where we expect risks to be encountered, whether they be war zones or in countries you know, that are autocracies. These threats now are in, as I said, Europe and North America. And we have, for example, the President of the United States, current president heading into an election in the US, who refers to journalists as the enemy of the people and who has targeted individual journalists and news organisations in ways that demonise them and effectively licence attacks on or offline on journalists. So we have a really, really serious problem here and it's one that requires collaborative response and a collaborative response from states that are willing to stand up and advocate for media freedom and journalism safety. It involves audiences who want to be able to access reliable, critical information that helps them navigate a pandemic or escape a bushfire or whatever the case may be. And also, of course, civil society organisations whose job it is to really ensure that these sorts of issues remain in the spotlight um, and that journalists can continue to do their jobs. Okay, well, that's a pretty bleak picture that you've painted for us there, Julie, but thank you for setting out all of the issues so clearly. And to discuss these questions in some more depth, I'm really delighted that we're joined in this episode by a formidable cast of speakers, including Maria Ressa, the founder and editor-in-chief of media organisation Rappler in the Philippines, Keelan Gallagher, QC of the Doughty Street Chambers in London, David Kay, the former UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression and now Clinical Professor of Law at University of California, Irvine, and Joel Simon, the President of the Committee to Protect Journalists. It really is hard to imagine a more impressive group of experts to discuss these questions that are critical at this time. So we begin by asking Maria Resser about her experiences of being a journalist and media freedom defender in Duterte's Philippines. So Maria Resser, I'd like to start with you. You talk about being the canary in the coal mine for intersecting crises uh, facing journalism when it comes to press freedom, while international experts often refer to you as the emblematic case in this space. So can you paint a picture for us of how one of Asia's most advanced democracies that had constitutional protections for media freedom in the Philippines descend into a situation where we have a virtual dictatorship under Rodrigo Duterte, whose state harassment of journalists, including you, along with orchestrated disinformation campaigns, is being used as a shorthand example of how things can so quickly deteriorate for media freedom. You know, I think the one thing that we've lived through that almost every journalist is having to deal with now is this kind of death by a thousand cuts of reputation, right? It started there. And I guess let's, all of this begins with information. Information is power. That's why I became a journalist to begin with. And, the, and I think what happened was just 
the gatekeepers transferred from news organizations to tech. Tech abdicated responsibility, and we now have social media platforms that are biased against facts. And in our case, in 2016, we were exponentially attacked bottom-up on social media. The lies that were spread were vicious. They first attacked our reputation as a news organization and attacked me personally. And then over the last four years, it just degenerated to the point that when I was convicted on June 15th, the kinds of attacks are really hate speech. I mean, that began by 2017. So bottom up to then top down, President Duterte echoed the same kind of narratives among them, journalist equals criminal. And then a year later in 2018, the law was weaponized and Rappler and I had 11 cases filed against us. 2019, arrest warrants. So eight of those uh, arrested twice. Julie, you know this. Keelan is one of our lawyers. So, And then finally, 2020, you know, all of the cases began in 2019. And by 2020, journalist equals criminal. I was convicted in a, a regional trial court of cyber libel, a crime that didn't exist when the story we published, which I didn't write, edit, or supervise eight years ago, right? That was when it was published for this crime that the law hadn't been written until four months after. So it's it's a little bit like a Kafkaesque, I guess is the right word. Joseph K. in the trial, I know what it feels like. But that combination, I think the one thing that it's different about this time period is that when a democracy doesn't stand on facts, you don't have anything. I'm sorry to have to make you run through that, Maria. I know you're exhausted from doing it. And I know that your legal team, Keelan included, and those who stand with you feel, however, a need to keep getting you to repeat these details because the world doesn't necessarily experience the twists and turns in succession as you've just laid them out. And I think what you do when you do that is to present a picture that is really difficult to digest as it's experienced in slow motion from the outside world's perspective. But this is, as you say, a death by a thousand cuts, but those cuts have been coming deeper and more quickly, haven't they? I mean, this has really escalated in 2020, this situation. So as you say, you have been convicted and you now are appealing that first conviction, but you have multiple other charges and cases pending What, from your perspective, does this signal to others who are watching this case around the world or this situation in the Philippines in terms of what's most urgent to pay attention to in their own midst as democracy and uh, media freedom face multitudes of threats and, and particularly in a pandemic environment? Again, I go back to the facts, right? But if you think about it, the reason we've survived the last four years is Everyone in this, in our podcast, has helped us survive. You know, uh, CPJ, David K, you, Julie, Keelan. I don't think we would have survived four years of this. But I think it goes back to the root cause, which is when facts are debatable, when a democracy cannot stand on facts, you have nothing. So I think about this as first we have to look at the tech Then we have to look at the state of journalism. How do we continue doing what we're doing despite the fact that the very platforms that distribute the news are the ones that are being used to attack us and to also 
crumble our business model, right? It's happening all at the same time. And then finally, the last one is if you don't have those facts, then how do you get civil society together, right? Julie, you, you're part of the Hold the Line Coalition. How do we get the facts to everyone when the very platforms that we organize on or where people get their news is biased against facts and journalism? It's a dystopia that we all saw happening and it has accelerated. And with U.S. elections, I just can't see how you know, if you have no facts, look at how it's being torn apart. If you have no facts, how can you choose who to vote for? And we'll come back and unpack a lot of that, Maria, as we go forward. But Ben, I think it'd be great if we could hear from David Kay after his six-year term as UN Special Rapporteur has just come to an end. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Maria, for that testimony. David, I wonder if we could turn to you now. As Julie said, you've just finished uh, a six-year term as the United Nations Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Expression. And during that period, we've seen an escalating disinformation crisis, a rise in the murder of journalists with impunity in Europe, a significant increase in online violence against journalists, particularly women. And then there are the crackdowns and surveillance that we've been seeing during the COVID-19 pandemic, not saying these are all down to you, uh, <laughs> but I just wondered, given that perspective and, and your experience with the United Nations, what are the biggest concerns that you're left with in terms of media freedom and journalist safety when we're thinking about the actions of, of states? Ben, thank you for, for that question. And thanks, Maria, for setting this up so well. You know, from the state perspective, I would say there are maybe two or three major problems that I would identify and that I saw over the last several years. The first is, I think, something that Maria alluded to, which is the redefinition of journalism and the sharing of information more generally as a form of illicit behavior. So for example, Turkey basically redefining certain kinds of journalism as terrorism or as subversive. So there's a kind of legal definition or redefinition or assault that is taking place around the world. And that sets up the stage for all sorts of attacks on journalists. So part of it is certainly legal. And then related to that is a kind of extra legal approach to journalism. You know, that's the kind of Donald Trump calling journalists enemies of the people. It's a kind of softening of the environment to make it susceptible for attacks on journalists. So on the one hand, you have states using laws to attack journalists. Then you have public leaders redefining journalists as a, a kind of public or cultural matter. And then on top of this, with the kind of fact-based problems that, that Maria identified, I think you have this real struggle in the broader public to understand when is it that real harms from disinformation constitute the kinds of things that government should take action against? And when is it that disinformation, or put another way, just the sharing of any kind of information is a problem that the law or the state should deal with. I think we have a basic confusion about that. And what that's leading to, I think in many parts of the world, is a kind of sense that while we need to attack this basic fundamental problem of disinformation, you also have states that are exploiting the situation and expanding their rules 
against the sharing of information that simply they don't like, you know, that is contrary to what the leader, the dear leader would like to see published. And so you have these two things kind of colliding together in a lot of ways. And at least at the level of law and policy, what I've seen is just a lot of confusion and a lot of repression. And those things are are interacting quite regularly. Uh, Can I just come in on one point, uh, which is... I don't want individual states to get off the hook here because Mm. much of our discussion today has necessarily been focused at a very high level Mm. uh, on what the international community can do, on what the UN can do, and so on. And the bottom line is, from what we've been hearing throughout the podcast, rogue states ostensibly take their rhetorical lead from so-called respectable states. And those states, which are theoretically committed to media freedom, and which champion media freedom in terms of their rhetoric, Canada, France, the UK and others, there is more that they can and should do to bring the worst actors into line. And I just wanted to give two quick examples. So Matthew Caruana Galizia, when he spoke uh, last week at a Council of Europe event, spoke about the importance of us not operating in silos. And those of us who do freedom of expression work, not focusing solely on freedom of expression from a human rights perspective, but also looking at the wider context. And in his case, his mother was killed due to work she was doing on financial corruption. And unless we work closely with those who deal with financial corruption, anti-money laundering laws and so on, what we are going to get in those kinds of cases is we'll only get a solution which is a partial solution. And it's essential that we actually tackle the underlying work by investigative journalists, which they were uncovering. And that is why I think it's very important that we also think about individual states needing to have far more robust mechanisms for tackling financial corruption and abuse of power, including mechanisms such as Magnitsky sanctions, for example, which can be used to target individuals Mm -hmm. and states uh, where needed, and that they have far, far stronger ways of cracking down on the subject matter of the reporting, which has led to Jan Kuciak's death, has led to Daphne Caruana Galizia's death and a range of other deaths around the world. And if we don't do that, we're only dealing with part of the problem. Keelan, thank you very much for that intervention. David, I wonder if based on your experience at the United Nations, whether you saw that there is potential within international organisations to address these issues. I mean, the examples that you, that you described there in your first answer are very much cases of politicians engaging in journalist suppression and attacking sort of media freedoms within their own domestic contexts. Mm -hmm. And I suppose maybe there's an extent to which states will say one thing at the United Nations and then do another thing when, when they go home. But do you think that the United Nations or other international organizations have the potential to kind of weigh in to this space? What potential do you see there? Yeah, I think the UN system, I mean, first of all, of course, there's a kind of fundamental problem in the UN system right now, particularly in the human rights mechanisms, where you have states like China, like Russia, like Turkey, like many others, that are really seeking to use the UN system to redefine how we think about human rights. And so it isn't just a question of of states using the UN as a place to say all the good things that you know we want to hear, but then behaving differently in their domestic environment. There's actually an assault on rights worldwide that is taking place everywhere, including within places like the Human Rights Council. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think you know the UN can be a place where on the one hand you have 
special rapporteurs or special mechanisms that can reassert the fundamental rules of human rights law, the protection of the freedom of opinion and expression, the accountability that's required for attacks on journalists. That should still happen, but I don't think we should treat the UN as as necessarily always a friendly place. It has to also be a place where democratic countries are engaging in the fight to ensure that human rights are not redefined, and also a place for civil society to raise its voice, because there's very few places in the UN system where civil society organizations can also call attention to the kinds of violation and, and also to call attention to the ways in which, as Maria started her answer with, the ways in which private actors are allowing themselves to be abused, allowing themselves to be exploited for nefarious purposes, whether it's by states or by other actors. So the UN can really be a place for normative definition and for kind of holding down the fort, as it were, for human rights law. But but it's not something that happens naturally. It's something that we have to be engaging in across the board. Those are some really important points, David, and we'll certainly come to the uh, role of big tech, for example, um, as not just a passive set of platforms, but somehow with a need to increase the focus on the regulation of those platforms. But um, Keelan Gallagher, you represent Maria Ressa and the family of Daphne Caruana Galizia, the Maltese journalist who was murdered with impunity a couple of years ago. How's the situation for public interest media and independent journalists deteriorated in the life of your extensive practice in this area of international human rights law as relates to press freedom. Thanks very much, Julie. Well, as I was listening to Maria and David, a meteorological metaphor came to mind, uh, which was that just as in terms of the climate, freak weather events or so-called freak weather events happen more frequently in a climate which is deteriorating long-term, in this climate, we also see more so-called freak or out-of-the-blue incidents happening when the climate overall is deteriorating. And that's ultimately what you've been hearing about from Maria and from David, about a global deterioration in terms of the climate for press freedom in multiple ways. A deterioration, a degradation of respect for journalism, not just in countries which are the usual suspects, which have formed part of my practice for a very long time, countries like Egypt, countries like Iran, But also with depressing familiarity, we are now seeing those themes emerging, not only under dictatorships, oppressive regimes. We're seeing that in many of the world's largest democracies and in countries which have traditionally been great friends of press freedom. So it's no exaggeration to say that journalists around the world now are facing growing threats to their work, to their safety, their liberty and often their lives in a way which makes the job more dangerous and more under threat than at any point in the last decade. And we see that from Joel's figures, from the CPJ's figures about deaths of journalists and rates of impunity. We see that from the growing numbers of jailed journalists in the last three, four years in particular, Turkey, China and Egypt being responsible for huge numbers, Saudi Arabia, Russia, Iran, climbing the grim rankings of those countries who jail journalists they perceive as critical. But it's very important to acknowledge that when you have the president of the United States of America calling journalists the enemy of the people or denouncing CNN or the New York Times as fake news, and indeed when you have leaders in the UK, I'm joining you from London here, 
talking about breaking international law as if that's acceptable. It is not a surprise that we then see that language echoed by leaders such as Putin in Russia, Duterte in the Philippines, Marino in Ecuador. And I think that overall climate is a critical thing for us to look at. Your question, Julie, referred to the life of my practice. And I think that's a rather unusual take on the never ask a lady her age type question. (laughs) But I, I qualified as a barrister two decades ago, summer 2001, months after the Human Rights Act came into force in the UK under Tony Blair's government with its promise of bringing rights home, with George W. Bush newly in post in the White House. And of course, that was a very challenging year for press freedom in many ways, because shortly after I qualified, Mm -hmm. we had the terrorist attacks of 9-11 and the ensuing war on terrorism tested conditions for the media internationally in many ways. But it's not a surprise when you look back on reports from that time that Freedom House in 2001 found that press freedom emerged intact with some gains. That was a time when press freedom, in fact, markedly improved in a range of countries across diverse regions of the world when you had a sweeping in of new governments, greater respect for civil liberties and the rule of law. Countries like Ghana, Peru, Congo, Vanuatu uh, were bringing in, at that time, new laws which protected press freedom, repealing criminal libel, sedition and insult laws which had long been used to imprison journalists. So it was a time when, for those of us working in this field, there was much to be positive about. And regrettably, over the last two decades, and particularly over the last five years, there have been trends which mean my work is more important than ever, as is yours, and as is David's, and as is Joel's. And it's deeply depressing that we're in that position. Yeah, indeed. And to stretch your extreme weather event analogy a little further, I guess the question really is, where is the tipping point and how do we avoid it? You know, if you think about the point of no return, and that's the thing, I guess, that keeps us up at night most in the midst of these battles, not least among us, Maria. But just before we move on to hear from Joel, I just want to go back to what David Kay was saying based on his experience of the UN. I mean, you act for people in a system that's governed by international human rights law. The UN in its various parts has some responsibility for making resolutions and recommendations and staging inquiries and so on with regard to freedom of expression and particularly journalism safety and press freedom. What do you think the UN system needs to do that it's not currently doing well enough to make your job easier and to ensure the protection of the people you represent? Well, that's a huge question, um, but let me give you some (laughs) ideas. I, I suppose the first thing is that what we've seen in the last number of years is some individuals within the system doing a superb job. We've been incredibly lucky to have David as the Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression for the last number of years. And the work he did as an individual uh, really cannot be underestimated. The work he did in individual cases made a huge difference. You know, He's personally been involved in many of the cases in which I act, uh, where I know that his intervention was central to securing release or securing some form of accountability. Similarly, the UN Special Rapporteur on extrajudicial killings, Agnes Calamar, is a dynamic committed individual uh, and she individually stepped in in circumstances where after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi there was no adequate mechanism either in Turkey or Saudi Arabia to investigate to gather evidence and she stepped in set up a panel and did a one-off ad hoc investigation herself. Now it seems to me that when you are reliant on an individual like Agnes Calamar stepping in in that way or an individual like David Kay, when he had the mandate as special rapporteur to step up and take action in these cases, or you're heavily reliant on someone like Peter Omtzeit, for example, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe rapporteur, 
who's been so superb in the Maltese case, uh, in Daphne Caruana Galicia's case, that you've got a real problem because what we do not have is adequate resourcing of those posts. So UN special rapporteurs at the moment are unpaid. They do not have adequate resourcing, it seems to me. And you're in a position where if the individual who's in post happens to be as dynamic and brilliant as David was or as Agnes is in post, and that's a positive thing for freedom of expression, but you're very much at the whim of who happens to get appointed. And I think for the special procedures to work more effectively, I think we need to look at adequate resourcing and not being so reliant on individual personalities who may do a superb job. I mean, that's one of a long wish list, Julie, but Mm -hmm. perhaps I can put that out there as as one thing which could be done to improve the system. Yeah, important observations and uh, territory for a whole other podcast, I think. Absolutely. I'd, I'd like to turn to Joel Simon now, if I may, from the Committee to Protect Journalists. Joel, I just wondered whether we could bring this conversation up into the events of 2020, a year which obviously has been dominated by the COVID-19 pandemic and where pandemic lockdowns have in some places been used to justify shutdowns and crackdowns on media organisations. I just wondered from the perspective of your organisation, whether you could tell us a bit about where and what are the greatest media freedom and safety risks in 2020? First of all, I I also want to add my thanks. It's an incredible honour to be on a panel with so many people that I admire so greatly who've contributed so much to the press freedom struggle. I think when you look at 2020, and obviously this year has been dominated by the COVID-19 pandemic, What's funny about the pandemic is the same way that it acts in unpredictable ways on human beings, it also acts in very unpredictable ways in the global body politic. So there isn't a simple, straightforward answer to how COVID-19 has impacted the global press freedom environment. I will say, first of all, however, that what we are seeing is something I call the, the COVID crackdown, which is the scope and breadth of actions that have been taken around the world. Nearly every country has taken some action to curtail freedom of expression or civil engagement under the guise of protecting public health or limiting, curtailing the sharing of of information that governments deem to be detrimental to combating the pandemic. So that is one thing that we've absolutely seen. We've seen a global crackdown. At the same time, a lot of the places around the world that are the most dangerous for journalists are the places that have traditionally been the most dangerous. So if you look at places like Mexico, uh, Philippines, Syria, Iraq, those are places where there's, there's high level of violence. But I should also point out, and this is sort of contradictory, that this year and notably last year, the number of journalists killed around the world has actually declined from historic highs. And we're in some ways struggling to understand that. One explanation could be that that some of the the conflicts that have driven the high levels of violence and murder against journalists, places notably uh, Syria and Iraq, the level and Yemen, the levels of violence have declined somewhat in those countries, although obviously they're ongoing. Perhaps the most optimistic framing might be, and I certainly hope this is the case, that the battle against impunity, for example, the work that's been done in in in, in Daphne Caruana Galicia's case and in holding political figures in Malta to account, and the progress we've seen in that case, Jan Kuchlak in, in Slovakia, and even Jamal Khashoggi, where we are very, very far away 
from justice, but there certainly have been political consequences for the Saudi regime. Perhaps that has also dissuaded governments that might use violence and murder to censor the press. The other thing is that there's a whole new strategy that has been extremely effective and is also much more difficult to document and fight against. And that's the one that Maria uh, outlined at the beginning, which is to destroy the reputations, to undermine public trust, systematic campaigns of harassment, exploiting the same social media platforms that, as Maria outlined, journalists use to share their journalism. Those platforms and technologies have been turned against journalism and journalists and are being used to undermine and attack their work. So that's a tactic that governments are employing more and more around the world. And let me just say one last thing. The other sort of key indicator of press freedom around the world is the number of journalists in prison around the world. And that number has been stubbornly high for the last five years. It's really reached record highs. And one force driving that is an increase in the number of journalists arrested around the world on fake news charges, Mm -hmm. which obviously we attribute to the kind of rhetoric we're seeing from President Trump which has been adopted and appropriated and exploited by many repressive leaders around the world. But we haven't seen a spike in arrests with a few notable exceptions, for example, Belarus, where there are ongoing crackdowns. But we haven't seen a spike in arrests around the world in the context of the COVID crackdown. So the contradiction here is that while it's the crackdown is global, its scope is enormous, its consequences are significant, It is extremely difficult to measure using the traditional data that we've used to document deterioration in the press freedom environment. John, I'll just follow up on that because um, at ICFJ with the Tau Centre and also in partnership with CPJ, we're uh, running uh, what is likely to become, unfortunately, um, an extended study on journalism and the pandemic. And it very much echoes what you've just described. The first results were were just published and we have seen journalists who we surveyed and we we surveyed about 1,400 journalists They are saying things like they're concerned mostly about injury to mental health. They're concerned about their failure of their employers to provide them with appropriate protective equipment in order to do their jobs safely. They certainly flagged issues around the uh, fake news legislation, which is being used, you know, as as a way to crack down in, in reference to disinformation. Most importantly, they flagged the difficulty that they face trying to navigate what we call the disinfodemic, the disinformation crisis, which is, of course, being used in ways that Maria has experienced most acutely to target journalists and journalism. And we also did not see the kind of spike we thought we might, where journalists were reporting themselves, you know, an increase in arrests. What we did see was an expression from about 30% of respondents that online violence against journalists has increased to the extent of about 30%. So, This is painting a picture now of a different kind of struggle, isn't it? And perhaps one that's going to be even harder to deal with and it's coming from from all sides. What do you think all of this signals about the way civil society needs to prepare to respond, particularly as the second wave of COVID-19 hits and, you know, fatigue is, is through the roof? The study was incredibly valuable and certainly confirmed what we've been hearing from journalists. And, and you know, one of the key variables driving a number of these different concerns is, is money and the lack of resources. And that, mm-hmm. that, I know, emerged as a powerful concern among journalists across the spectrum that, that were participated in this survey. And that just shows the way in which you know, COVID-19 has been an accelerant 
of these terribly negative trends. It has empowered autocratic leaders around the world. It has enhanced the ability of governments to use surveillance because they can justify the use of surveillance technology as, as an instrument of public health. It has empowered uh, governments that are consolidating power and control and authority. The Chinese model has been greeted with uh, enthusiasm from autocratic leaders around the world. China is gaining its soft power and influence. So all of these negative tendencies have been reinforced. In terms of how civil society responds to this, I, I mean, sometimes I get a little frustrated with that question, to be honest, because this issue is so, any aspect of this issue is so complex and difficult that there is no sort of magic bullet. And sometimes I see civil society organizations you know, out there trying to come up with some new framework or some new system or some new strategy that's going to tip the balance. This is a historic shift in power fueled by technology. And the solutions, like the problem itself, are systemic. So I think that civil society organizations, at least like ours, that are focused on press freedom and the protection of journalists, I think we need to actually double down on the strategies that work, even though they're more difficult in the current environment. That is, defending the rights of individual journalists, confronting governments and other powerful forces that seek to restrict the press and the work of journalists, speaking out about censorship, new laws, threats to the structures that enable the enabling environment, if you will, for journalists. But I think that thinking about this in terms of what is the systemic solution to these broader problems is actually a bit of a distraction because the forces arrayed against us, if you will, are so powerful that we're going to have to see a kind of shift in the global political order to put this genie back in the bottle. Thanks very much, Joel. Maria, I wondered if I could turn to you now. I wanted to see if we could get another dimension into this understanding of of the threats facing journalists. Um, obviously, there are all sorts of different aspects to a journalist's role. Different people define themselves in different ways. And also a whole range of people are involved in the practice of journalism. Thinking particularly about your own sort of geographical context, where the Philippines remains one of the deadliest countries on earth to be a journalist. I wondered whether you think that physical threats against journalists and independence news media have escalated since 2016. And in particular, whether you think this escalation has had a kind of gender imbalance. Do you think that the risks that we're talking about today are particularly prevalent or, or different for women journalists? Absolutely, that the threats against women journalists is different. I mean, in the Philippines, for sure, we have the data and and it is at least women are attacked at least 10 times more than men. But I was just thinking about what Joel has said, and then kind of what David and Keelan had said. And I just want to put it in a framework that may be interesting pulling what the three of us had said, which is think about the world after World War II. And remember, like the entire world decided that an atom bomb couldn't be deployed anymore. But now imagine if the world didn't stop and didn't come together to prevent that from happening and that every country could get an atom bomb and detonate it at any time. That's the world we live in today, right? Like, and I now I sound very hyperbolic, but you know, I think that 
part of the way we're going to have to handle this is to keep the best of the old, but also understand that this is, you know, as Joel said, this is something we have never, the world has never lived through before because of technology. You know, we have never dealt with advertising that manipulates us, advertising that becomes influence operations. And now, how are we all going to deal with it? Yes, civil society can do what has worked in the past, but I think that we're going to have to pull all these different strands together, uh, which, which include, you know, demanding accountability and loss for tech, strengthening news organizations. And it's not just a safety, like, yes, I am under threat. And yes, every journalist wakes up with threats in their cell phone. So it's quite intimate. And yes, real online violence leads to real world violence. But the last part is that all of that is meant to make people doubt the world they live in so they cannot act. So that's the civil society part. I, I even think about Keelan working with our international lawyers also makes me sometimes like, go, oh my God, we should just give up. This is too hard and we just can't. And I guess that's the, that's the challenge, right? And the challenge is to take these very lofty, because you're reformatting the world. That's actually what we're doing. Can I come to you, David Kay, off the back of Maria's very powerful entreaty there on the issue of the enabling platforms for disinformation, which is bound up in all of this, based on your analysis and your time over the past six years in the role of special rapporteur, where you have engaged uh, with civil society, journalists, states and tech, what do you think needs to happen now? What is the one thing that the tech platforms could do to actually change the trajectory we're on? Yeah, it, I mean, it is a great question. It's also a very big question. I mean, unfortunately, I don't think there's there's one thing. You know, much as, as Joel was suggesting, you know, I think that if we look for a kind of silver bullet, you know, like a single response to solve the, the problem of online disinformation, we're going to come up short. So like one thing that clearly the companies should be doing is being more transparent about their rules and their enforcement of their rules. It's very difficult. It's extremely opaque to know exactly how they're dealing with forms of disinformation. And so there's this information asymmetry out there where the companies have all the information, but the public, civil society, governments have very limited information. And it may very well be that notwithstanding the fact that the companies have rules, you know, they, they often look like they're operating by the seat of their pants. And, and this is particularly troubling when, you know, we in the United States are two weeks out from an election. And I honestly cannot tell you how the companies are going to respond to the torrent of disinformation. Like we think it's bad now, it's probably going to be even worse in the days before and the days after the election. And I don't think we know how the companies are actually going to respond to that. And so I think we need like real clarity, both in the enforcement side and the rulemaking, and also clarity in advance so that we know what they're gonna be doing, so that the bad actors can't complain afterwards and say, we didn't know that this was how they were gonna respond. They're making it up 
its conservative bias, all of those mm-hmm. things. So I think, you know, that, of course, in combination with the fact that you need public regulation on these matters, not necessarily content regulation, but regulation on the transparency side, all of these things together are going to have to combine to kind of reframe how we think about about disinformation and how we we address it. Thanks very much, David. And Maria Ressa, you obviously are on record as uh, holding Facebook in particular complicit or to account in your situation, your predicament. So transparency and also accountability are the critical things, along with some responsibility in the form of uh, forward planning. Great points from David Kay. I think, Ben, let's hear from Keelan Gallagher next. Keelan, I hope you've been enjoying the conversation as much as we have. I, I wondered if I could come to you now and ask a bit about the potential solutions to this, or at least ways to address these problems that we've been talking about, Mm. that may exist within the kind of legal space. So are there any sort of existing legal frameworks that could be better exploited to better protect journalists? Or should we be starting from scratch and rewriting, (laughs) rewriting the rule book, as it were? Uh, Well, the short answer is yes to both. But would you mind if I took a leaf out of others' book and just came back on a couple of points which have come up? Please do. So something that was occurring to me during the very helpful discussion there about disinformation and some of David's points, particularly given the looming US election, was the very powerful words from veteran broadcaster Dan Rather, who has described Trump as being the biggest threat to press freedom in the US in his lifetime. Again, I'm giving away someone's age there, I think. But what he said, which is very important, is that we need to consider not only what Trump has done in denigrating the media, creating a climate where people think of fake news as being something which attaches to investigative journalism, public interest journalism, but he also has been very critical, and I think rightly so, of the fact that there's been a tendency to be respectful of the office of president in a way which means uh, that some disinformation simply hasn't been called out. And the phrase he used, which I think is very powerful, is that members of the media, for entirely understandable reasons, some of them have engaged in what he called false equivalency or both-sidism. So feeling that they needed to show balance by suggesting that a completely crazy statement which is made by Donald Trump is somehow just one perspective... Uh, which should be given equal weight to another perspective. And look, I see that a lot in my work in a range of spaces, not only in relation to journalists. I mean, it's a problem we've also had when you look at false narratives around, for example, what happened to the Hillsborough victims in 1989. You know, you Mm. get a, a tendency to try to present both sides as if they're equal. And there is a difficulty with that when it comes to tackling disinformation. Uh, So can I just flag um, that? And could I also say, given the question that arose earlier in relation to gender-based attacks, obviously we've got Julie um, on this podcast and I can strongly recommend much of Julie's very recent work on this precise topic about gender-based attacks online on female journalists and misogynistic attacks on female journalists. And the phrase, I hope I'm remembering this correctly, Julie, you may need to jump in and correct me. From memory, Julie's description was that there's a new front line in journalism safety where female journalists often sit at the epicentre of risk. And indeed, female journalists of colour are often particularly disempowered and particularly Mm -hmm. threatened. And that is very important because we've spoken about many of the threats which are faced now. But I think there's three quick things I wanted to flag about threats that I tend to see in my work and that we need to factor in when we're talking about these big concepts. One of them is the issue about 
gender-based threats to female journalists, particularly online. The second one is particular risks to freelancers. And that hasn't come up in our discussion yet. But in many of my cases involving journalist safety and indeed deaths of journalists or physical attacks on journalists, and my clients are bereaved families of freelance journalists. And that leads, I think, to two points. First of all, uh, they tend not to have very deep pockets, bereaved families of freelancers, because they don't have a big media organisation behind them who is supporting them. So, for example, you take the death of Christopher Allen, who was a war reporter who was killed in South Sudan in a climate of total impunity. He's a US-UK national and his family has been managing with a small budget and loud voices uh, to try to raise the profile of his case, uh, assisted by organisations such as CPJ, RSF and others who've been fantastic on his case. But when you have the death of a freelancer, I think there are very particular difficulties uh, because you simply don't have the same leverage that you would have if that was an attack on someone associated with a larger media organisation. And you see that similarly when you look at freelancers who are jailed all around the world who don't necessarily have the kind of campaign that you saw Reuters have in Myanmar, for example. So I think we need to bear that in mind. Uh, and then the last aspect of the threats, which I think we need to bear in mind when we're thinking about solutions, is increasingly what we're seeing is cross-border threats. And that's partly a product of what Maria has been speaking about so powerfully earlier, and Joel and David, about new technologies. So what we're increasingly seeing is that it is incredibly easy for state and non-state actors alike to target journalists in the most intimate way, as Maria says, waking up to rape threats or death threats on your mobile phone or in your inbox in the small hours of the morning. And can I just give one example, which I don't think has received at all enough attention uh, in the last few months? And that is, for a number of years, Iran in particular has had an increasingly sophisticated campaign online to target journalists at a range of organisations who are all journalists in exile. So these aren't journalists based in Iran. These are journalists based outside Iran reporting on Iran. Now, of course, for many years, being a journalist within Iran has been known to be extremely high risk. We all know about Maziar Bahari, then a reporter for Newsweek, jailed in Evan in 2009. We know about Jason Rezaian, brilliant Washington Post reporter whose Tehran home was raided in 2014. Uh, and he and his wife arrested, Jason then detained for a year and a half, convicted in a closed-door trial. But what I see that is new in relation to Iran, and this is unfortunately a pattern that's spreading, is that Iran is not only harassing journalists and accusing them of espionage simply for doing their jobs on home soil. Iran is now using technology and other methods to target journalists who report in exile. So what it is attempting to do is use the long arm of the state to reach out across borders, attempt to silence journalists based in Germany, working for Deutsche Welle, in London, working for BBC Persian, in the US, working for Voice of America, those working for Radio Farda and others. So it's leveraging the fact that they have loved ones within Iran to exert pressure upon journalists outside, but it's also using technology. And a horrendous case, which has not had at all enough attention, it seems to me, in European media in the last few months is that of Ruhal Azam. And Ruhal Azam was a journalist in exile in France who was reporting critically about Iran, appears to have been lured to a meeting with a source and was rendered back to Iran where he's received the death penalty. You know, that is the logical extension of what we're seeing with this cross-border threat. And many of my clients for BBC Persian in recent weeks and months have had messages which are undoubtedly state-connected saying, 
please come back. You're safe to see your family. You should return. And that is against the backdrop of what's happened with Ruhalazam. And David Kay in particular has been superb in calling out what's been happening with BBC Persian, Deutsche Welle, other media organisations who've been reporting about Iran from outside Iran and the very grave risks. And four weeks ago, we saw in two UN reports a reference to one of my clients, Rana Rahimpur, who's a London-based journalist, receiving death threats simply for doing her job. And she's not only received death threats, she's also received rape threats of her primary school-age child with details about her daughter. And I think when we're talking about threats, we've got to be aware of those other factors too. Thanks very much, Keelan. And just to pick up on that final point you made in the research that we're doing about online violence uh, against women journalists, we have noted already this pattern of extending the threats to family members, particularly female children. But it's so important to highlight cases. Unfortunately, there are too many of them for many journalists to keep up with. And so it's really important that those of us who are observing closely are able to surface these issues, just as you've done, Keelan. So thank you. And Joel, if I can come to you for your final observations and I'm going to bring you right back home. You're you're in New York. Mm. You are on the eve of a US election like no other that most of us could recall. And you've had, as you've indicated, to turn CPJ's lens inwards for the first time to the situation of deteriorating media freedom in the US. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the aftermath will be. But what do you want those of us observing from a greater distance to be mindful of um, and to be vigilant about as uh, as that poll occurs with regard to journalism's future and safety and, and media freedom? Well, well, thank you so much again for this opportunity. And I'm going to pick up on a couple of things that a number of other folks have said, particularly uh, Keelan's most uh, recent intervention and kind of amplify a couple of points. First, I want to get back to Dan Rather. Dan Rather was one of the founders of, of CPJ back in 1982. So when he talks about his insights into the press freedom environment and what he's seen over his career, I certainly appreciate and agree that President Trump uh, represents a unique threat to press freedom, both in the United States and globally. But I, I, I want to amplify a few things that he said and get back to the technological environment and get back to the question of, of, of U.S. influence around the world and how this election is being perceived. I definitely understand and recognize uh, that there's too much false equivalency in the media, but I think that that fails to recognize really the alternative media environment, which is made up of Fox News uh, evening lineup and other online vectors, which both amplify and feed that the kind of misinformation that that represents, which reaches huge numbers of the American public. They're not, you know, reading the New York Times and you know getting hung up on, you know, is this side being fairly represented and as opposed to that side, they've completely opted out of the kind of traditional media and they're getting their information uh, from other sources. Frankly, I sometimes miss coverage in the mainstream media that treats even extreme views with a certain empathy rather than disdain. Just That's just me as a reader. Sometimes I miss that kind of journalism and I don't see enough of it. But I think the broader point here, a couple couple things. One is just as Trump kind of exploited the contradictions of the traditional media environment through his consistent lies, because journalists are caught in this paradox, either they, they cover the lies and they amplify them or they don't cover the lies and they're accused of bias. And navigating that is an incredibly difficult 
undertaking, which, you know, journalism, journalists have struggled to do, despite the fact that we've also seen some incredible, outstanding investigative journalism in which all people in the profession should be proud. But now he's going after, and not just him, but his minions, the kind of technological environment. And he's, he's exploiting that and undermining that. I mean, the fact that Twitter and Facebook are in a position, one, they resisted for so long, where they have to call the balls and strikes. They now have to make a decision about whether Trump is, you know, disinformation and to block him or take him down or restrict the circulation of his expressions and, and or in the most recent instance, they're blocking and removing content published by the New York Post, regardless of what, what you think of that particular decision. The fact that they're in that position is impossible and untenable. And the system is broken. And that has global consequences. And now let me talk about the U.S. role here. I mean, a lot of people, understandably, are resistant to the notion of U.S. exceptionalism or the power that the U.S. has had, and the normative power as well. But I think, regardless of what you, how you view those broader principles, we need the U.S. to be a good and positive global example and global partner. And that is been destroyed by the Trump administration. That possibility in this election is not going to be a traditional election. It's not going to be a model in which the loser concedes gracefully and there's a kind of celebration of democracy and a transfer of power. This is going to be a war and a battle and information is going to be at the heart of it. And the whole world is watching. And the very systems that support the global information order, the traditional media and the new media are both under attack and both being exploited and both being undermined. So getting back to, you know, what do we, what do, we do about this? Because everyone sort of focused on that. And I think understandably, there are no, and getting back to what, what David said, there are no simple solutions. There is no silver bullet. There is no magic formula. We need to double down and continue with the strategies of defending press freedom and the rights of journalists at that work and engage it with the platforms. And as uh, Maria has indicated, responding to the new threats, including harassment. But she's exactly right. This is a new global order and there is a weapon on the loose. And that weapon is information. It's not the nuclear bomb. And we need a whole new paradigm and a whole new framework to contain and manage that threat. And it is not up to civil society, particularly not press freedom organizations, to develop that new framework. It needs to be a massive partnership involving certainly civil society, but states, political movements, a broader sweeping exercise to contain and manage this new threat. Joel, thank you very much for that. And uh, we'd like to come now to Maria just for a last word. I think the majority of the listeners to this podcast won't be media professionals or working in journalism directly, but they will all consume news. And I was wondering then what your message would be for this broader audience. You talk about the need to hold the line in this struggle against threats to media freedom. What do you think broader society needs to do to help? And why should our listeners be concerned? Three things. The first is that we need to understand and accept that the platforms that are delivering our news is at the same time using technology that is insidiously manipulating us. That's huge. Uh, the second thing is part of the reason facts are debatable 
why we do not have facts, why cheap armies on social media can tear democracy down is because it is built into the design of these platforms. And then the third thing is that in order to stand up to power in the past, we have needed journalists to do that. And it, there is a whole system of standards and ethics that require courage to maintain, to keep standing up to power. And these work hand in hand. If you don't have facts, you can't hold power to account. Uh, and then those facts are the same things that will be used by groups of people, whether it's NGOs, whether civil society groups, whether government, to make decisions in the real world. I, I run out of words to describe the way I see the world today because we don't have anything like it. I mean, I, I'll go back to Brave New World and SOMA, where we go to the matrix and how we are plugged into it and we don't know it. Um, we don't know what we don't know. And I think that's the biggest problem we have right now is that we still think it's the old world where you pick up a paper and that, that information that is given to you has been vetted. We now know with U.S. elections, finally, social media platforms are taking action and acting like gatekeepers way after the fact. It is too late. And that's part of the reason I joined the Real Facebook Oversight Board, because I realized that as a journalist, it wasn't enough. When we do stories and we place ourselves in peril to do these stories, it just gets lost. And so we need to work with civil society groups. I guess that that's the third part is that these kinds of alliances and Joel is actually, CPJ was actually the first one, the first group that pulled journalists together at the dropping of the ball on New Year's Eve in January, 2019. And that was just for news groups. But I think the biggest problem that I see right now is that's only one of the three legs of what props, what holds democracy and society together. I'm sorry, it's so huge, right? I'm wrapping my head around it and looking for words simultaneously to, to give you. But I guess this is this moment that we will, it's a once in a century moment, isn't it? Uh, the pandemic has, uh, the other panelists have said this, it's exacerbated what was already problematic to begin with. The technology has appended global power structures, local power structures, by taking away the pillar that holds it all together, facts. What do you do when you don't have that? And I think that's the challenge to all of us is we need to find new ways of collaborating. We need to find new laws that will restore some sense of order in the chaos. And then finally, the last part is how do we not let the hatred that travels on these platforms engulf us? It's a, that's, that's a challenge. Maria, thank you very much for those last thoughts. And that is it for this episode. Well, that's it for this episode and this series, in fact, on future-proofing media freedom. Thanks once again to all our guests for taking part in freewheeling but really pressing conversations. To find more research on these questions of media freedom and sustainability in 2020, you can visit the Luminate and ICFJ websites. 
you're probably, hopefully, listening to this on the Undercurrents podcast feed. If you enjoyed what you heard here, there are over 70 previous episodes that you can work your way through. Make sure, if you can, to subscribe and leave a review on your podcast app as it makes it easier for people to find us. And to keep up with the rest of Chatham House's work on all aspects of international affairs, you can follow us on Twitter at Chatham House or visit our swanky new website at www.chathamhouse.org. Julie, I just wanted to say it's been wonderful to share these discussions with you. Thanks so much for your contributions. I thought it was really fascinating. Thanks so much, Ben. And thanks for having me. It's been a real privilege and I've really enjoyed, seems like the wrong word, but I've I've really benefited from the expertise of the people you've had on, on the panels here and the opportunity to talk a little bit more about the sort of work we're doing at ICFJ, including the Journalism and the Pandemic Project, which is tied up with all of these issues. So I'd encourage everybody to really dig into that research if you can. And hopefully I'll be back again sometime soon. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now.